this is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Vajani and me, Robert Cornish. So Suresh, what, why are you putting this blindfold on me before we get in the car? Um, I'm actually going to take you somewhere where it's, you know, it's, it's heavy security, um, something called PCI and we'll go into that. Oh, I didn't think you were very PC. <laughs> no, that's you, Robert. I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm actually going to show you all the data stored in something called the cloud. The cloud? Yes. So we're going to go up in the air? Uh, yeah, yeah, if you could call it we're that. We're going flying? Yes. So put this on. Okay. okay. So I can't, I can't see anything now. Yeah, now um, just, let's just go through this door. Do you need to put that sack over my head as well? Just, it's, I, it's if, breathing if can be difficult. You're not really supposed to be here. It's, it's, it's very, it's called PCI certified. You need to register your details. It's better they don't know about you. So just come through this door. Okay, um, okay, can you... There's another sorry, door. Um, what? There's a you fire door. Thank you. I just bashed my nose. Red. Don't forget my arm is hurting as well. I'm throbbing here. You are now in the cloud. Wow. Nothing. At all. Silent. But what if I told you the cloud is someone else's data centre? Oh, look. There's somebody there. Well, I've got a blindfold on. How am I supposed to tell? That. Don't worry. You come with me, Robert. Okay. Oh, look. So, that... What? That's Nera Jones. Who? Nera. Nera. Come nearer. Oh, hi, Suresh. How, How are, are you? you? Fancy seeing you in a data center. Oh, well, quite, you know. I go to really fab places. <laughs> I have my, my good friend with me. Do you recognize him? Who is that? I think I've seen those shirts before. That's very distinct, yes. You can't it see his is. face, but you can see it. I know. Can I, can I take the hood off now? No, I don't think we should. <laughs> <laughs> you did a whole interview. I think we should ask Nira some questions while okay. we have. Okay, let's do that. Let's go. Thank you, Nira. And uh, I've known you since your Barclay card days. I remember coming up to Northampton and meeting you uh, up there and uh, discussing. At that stage, it was a lot to do with cyber breaches and things like that and how, how Barclay card were dealing with those sort of issues. I but know. You've, uh, you've grown a long way since then. It was. It seems like ages ago. It was a different life. A different life. A ago. different life. So Nira, because I know you've been involved in many companies, and actually, when I remember, you know, there's companies we've heard of, companies you haven't heard of. I would love to know, in a whistle stop tour, your journey into payments, because you were at a time in payments when, you know, let's be honest, there was very few females in the payment space. Well, it was purely accidental, and I've been in retail banking, you know, since I, I, I came out of uh, university, and uh, and I wanted to work for banks. Actually, in my early days, I was a programmer, so I'm a bit of a of, of a nerd. So you really. understand code. I understand code. Wow. I'm afraid. So, uh, but this was also a very long time ago. So I started working for banks, and then I. How long ago on. are we talking? Oh. Well, I don't think we want a, to go into A reasonable age. while ago. Yeah. So I guess that would have been... Did Robert have hair on his head then? Yes or no? Oh, he might have had. <laughs> wow. That's a long time it ago. It is a long time yes. ago. So I was in, in retail banking and then I went and worked for technology companies, but also on the, on, on the supply side of financial services. So I worked for Oracle, I worked for Unisys and then swapped to banks and so on and so forth. And round about when I was working for Santander... And I was actually a program director. And I had a number of uh, programs that I was managing. And uh, where do you go after having done such interesting things? So it's been a fab journey for me. Uh, and I learned a lot. We, we, um, we, we have this uh, bin, this metal bin that Robert's carrying. 
Yeah, um, I like to carry it, it's a bin not, with it's me. It's not a spit bin. It's actually, uh, we get questions from some of our listeners. We don't tend to know what's in there, but we're going to ask you some questions. I'm sure that you'll be okay with it. Um, yeah, I'll dive in first. Yeah, you, you I'll go. dive in first. Ah, this one kind of fits what we've been discussing, actually. Do you think there are many large corporates that have suffered data breaches who are covering it up? Ooh. Ooh. So what what time frame are we looking at, Robert? Uh, there is no time frame on the question, but I think it's quite pertinent to today. So it's probably post-GDPR, but let's, let's say in the last couple of years. Okay, so certainly pre-GDPR, yes, most definitely a lot. Okay, because there most was no... Most definitely a lot, because there was no mandatory disclosure requirement okay. in terms of data breaches. So if you if you think most particularly about breaches that happen in the payment sector, so at merchants, yes. for the sake of argument. Now, you and I know that acquirers will always know about those. Yes. Because these get spotted by the industry, within the industry. The PCI DSS standard is there exactly for those reasons. The card schemes are really managing it and uh, and merchants really suffer in terms of fraud losses and fines and so on and so forth and so do the issuers who have to reissue cards uh, in that space so and i can say that uh, all of the acquirers certainly in the uk and worldwide have seen many many breaches pre-gdpr certainly in europe uh, that were really substantial but were never disclosed to the public yeah. So that does happen, and that did happen. So the difference now since uh, since May 2018 is that there are mandatory disclosure requirements on firms for breach of uh, personal information. And cardholder information is very much personal information. <laughs> yes, so, uh, so therefore now that's why you, you, you have seen the British Airways, the Ticketmaster and all of those things. Uh, so you think in the past maybe they wouldn't have been notified? They'd have been kept under the table? Oh, absolutely. And they were. I, I know for a fact that they were absolutely kept under the table. So because the fact that were... we're seeing more now mm. is not because there are more because it's better better hackers in there getting the stuff. You think it's 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 same as it ever was, but they're having to disclose it. Absolutely. In fact, if you cast back your, your mind before 25th of May 2018, all you kept hearing about was a breach at uh, such and such American retailer, say Target in 2015, yes. breach at such and such American hotel, such and such American whatever, such and such. That is because in the States there were disclosure laws. Ah. So they have to Robert disclose. was very concerned when um, Ashley Madison got breached. I yes. know that, yes. And uh, that being oh, you, you your, your, your you pseudonym. You, 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 <laughs> did, you didn't give your real name. <laughs> Who does? Who does? <laughs> so I have a question for you regarding PCI. So we talk to so many um, companies, all these fintechs, mm-hmm. and they're like, we can build anything, we know how to do everything, and uh, we've built this technology and then you say to them are you are you pci certified mm-hmm. and they're like you know what is it firstly and secondly is that there's so many fintechs we can talk about that have amazing products amazing services but they're, they're not pci certified because it's quite a lengthy and complicated process that goes into that so 
if you had to explain to somebody what exactly is PCI, how would you explain it to somebody? Ooh, okay, so PCI applies to any organization that would store, transmit, or process cardholder information. So that's the short version of the standard. And essentially, the reason why it was created uh, is to prevent fraud. We're in payments, that's what we want to do. We want to have an ecosystem uh, uh, that is safe for uh, consumers and organizations to use. So if you look at PCI, what is it? It's uh, unlike, for example, the GDPR, which is a regulation, which says you need to protect not only personal information, you also need to protect the privacy of individuals. PCI is about security, purely. It's not about privacy. It's about protecting the organization from suffering fraud and from cardholder information to endanger, say, the integrity of the card payment ecosystem. So what do organizations, uh, organizations have to do? It depends what they are. And obviously, you would have more responsibility, say, if you're an acquiring bank or an issuing bank, and you will have different uh, requirements if you're a small merchant as opposed to a larger merchant. So obviously, because there is more at risk if you're a BA than if you're the florist, you know, or the corner shop, accepting them. And that's where you have, like, level one, two, three, four. Absolutely. So that, that's what you do. If you look at PCR in the simplest terms, it's about making sure that you don't do silly things. So when you're an SME, if you look at the requirements of PCI, it's pretty much like you yourself would be using your mobile phone and make sure you have, say, an antivirus on there and uh, uh, you don't you know, leave your card number lying about or whatever it is that you want to protect on your mobile. And it's pretty much the same thing. Make sure your environment is safe, make, make sure the system is patched make sure you use a reputable payment provider, and so on and so forth. I mean, I simplify it because, you know, the entirety of the DSS is about, you know, 300 questions. Or but whatever. in theory, if you are PCI, it's, is it probably much harder to have a data breach? If you are well on your way towards PCI compliance, indeed, it is much harder to have a data breach. Because unlike the GDPR, which says um, this is what you should do, the DSS says this is how you do it. It's very specific. It's very, very specific. Right. I mean, it does go down to a, an incredible amount of detail, which can seem daunting for small organizations, um, even, even now, because if you are a very small merchant and you're going to have to take the smallest of self-assessment questionnaire, it's still quite, quite a number of questions, say 20, 30 questions, and they are written in a way that a security professional would understand, but the florist certainly would not. So the trick really is when you're helping SMEs is to, uh, to say things in plain language. And, and that is very difficult when you're talking about security. And when you're looking at things like POS machines, mm -hmm. yeah, there's always been sort of issues around when they hand the, the terminal to you, it's still going to be connected with a cable because part of the information has to be stored in a, a different way to the rest of it. For example, people have been trying for years to make a, a mobile phone keypad be PCI compliant, but I don't think it's been 
agreed yeah ah well actually if you look at the development from me from emv co in terms of enabling uh, the standard the spec is out there in terms of enabling consumer device devices to be companion devices i was actually looking at this at the spec so the happening? other day uh, i have no doubt it will happen it is actually inevitable it started you know a few years back with those providers that would give you the the handheld and the lack like, of a square and the yes. icicles and yeah, yeah. which are granted purpose-built devices but the way things are moving we do most of our work on those devices so it is absolutely inevitable and i don't think uh, and 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 people are not missing the boat they how are. far away are we from Oof. that happening I where people I'll... can just have their own mobile phone go into a shop and type a code pin on glass is yeah. a standard that always already exists. but i've not seen it in any i've shop. not seen it and it's like everything and i'm sure we'll really find many parallels in that it's like everything it depends on consumer adoption look at psd2 and open banking I mean, Fab, my, my husband recently di- discovered digital banking and he swears by it, like <laughs> as if it's the you know best thing since sliced bread. Is he telling you, did, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, 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 <laughs> I, I, and I said, and I said, and I said, oh, basically, you, you, you should do that after he was trying and miserably failing or getting really annoyed because he's very impatient of trying to onboard with a new bank. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I said, well, you know, try them, uh, talking about the great orange ones. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and he, he, he was so astounded <laughs> that you could do that sort of thing that now it's his topic of conversation at the pub. Oh He's trying gosh. to convert <laughs> all of these people <laughs> into digital banking. I know. Anyway, I digress. The reason why I, say, I was saying this is because there are lots of good things with standards and regulation, like open banking. It's going to make consumers' lives much easier. But... If they don't know about it, then they're not going to use it. And therefore, there won't be a demand. Therefore, people won't be developing it. It is exactly the same thing that happened with faster payment. Faster payment was, was launched, as you know, in like 2008. And by the time the government review happened, I think it was in March 2009, uh, they said, great job, you know, only two banks were ready. Because, you know, they couldn't agree on which limits and well, is there going to be any fraud and so on and so forth. And between that first nine, nine, ten months, only 83,000 payments were processed. So the go- process. So the government body that reviewed the implementation said, yeah, implementation body, great strategic job. However, consumer didn't benefit, benefit that much, much only 83,000 payments. Uh, so you need to do better. So, and I, and I looked at it a bit and see what was happening around that time. This is when you started seeing the Halifax ad with the slightly worried lady going and going, Halifax, uh, uh, faster payment and banking, you only do this and that and the other. And she's like biting her lip because like it's a new thing. <laughs> uh, so, so you started to see all these ads. So some words. consumer adoption started coming from... Absolutely. And, it, and in fact, it's not that. That actually gave the volumes to faster payments is because you they introduced direct corporate access and then they made direct corporate access 24 by 7 so that gave you the boost and the volume and suddenly it was more established and suddenly or that's also when you started started to see fraud happening because there was volume now so it was more interesting than 83,000 payments looks like robert's hand right i'm not sure but it says, what is dirty data? 
Is it as much fun as it sounds? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> We're not talking about scraping your hard drive now, Sarah. Um, yeah. My goodness. So, yeah, so my interpre- interpretation of dirty data is, is data that is not, and it happens everywhere. It happens in corporation. Because so could you give us a scenario in which we would get inaccurate? Where would you find dirty data? Where would you find Apart dirty data? Apart from Robert's browsing uh, history. For example, you have a bank account with a bank. And you have an insurance product with a bank. And you have some other services with that particular bank. And we're talking established bank. So by definition, an established bank will have many legacy and many siloed systems. It is not uncommon to see that those systems are completely separate and that they don't talk to each other. So let's say you have your insurance product and your Robert Kirknach. Yes. And then you have your bank product and your Mrs. Uh, Miss, sorry, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Robert, whatever your middle name is. Kirk Edmund. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then you have another one and it, it might be something else. So your address has the county in it and on the insurance product it hasn't and so on and so forth. Right. So, so, so it's a mismatch. It is, it is a, a mismatch. Maybe your phone number is accurate on one of them. It is not on the others because you did not take it because you don't need to go on that account yeah. uh, very often. So let's imagine that scenario. All of the data in there is accurate in some way. Sometimes it may be outdated. Now imagine if you want to do something fancy with that data. And let's say you want to derive insight for that data. And let's say you want to uh, to use machine learning because it's like, the buzzword and banks want to derive insight so that they make better decision and that they sell you more stuff. So you've got all of that data that they have about you and potentially that that will be inaccurate because you may be repre- represented as three different individuals. I've actually seen the positives of dirty data. Right. So let me explain. So this is kind of prior to GDPR, but there's been instances where, I don't know, I've opened an account or I've done something or registered somewhere where I might have spelt my name wrong or they've read it wrong or the information is inaccurate and then someone sends starts sending you junk mail with the wrong information huh. so then I'm like ah you were the guys that sold my data right and I, di- I didn't think about it at the time but it was actually a very useful yeah. uh, way of actually working out who's selling my data yeah Ab- absolutely I mean uh Perhaps not for financial services where, where you need to be more, more accurate than, say, on your social media yeah. account. Uh, but when, when you think of it, dirty data, even more so now, is actually a very big problem. And the reason why it is, well, in Europe, certainly, there is a fundamental principle in the GDPR which is called accuracy. So you as an individual, if you do know that your data is inaccurate, with one of your service providers, it is one of your fundamental rights to have that data corrected. Would so, that apply to the police? If you've got something on there that you think, well, that should no longer be there, does it does it apply to things okay, like that? Okay, so um, in terms of uh, you've got something on there that is accurate but should no longer be there, this is the principle of accuracy and this is about law enforcement which have separate uh, has separate provisions uh, as far as the GDPR is concerned and uh, 
and certainly in, in the UK, in the transpositional law, you have law enforcement provision. To, so that's a separate issue. Do you but mind if I take some notes down about this? This is very useful for, oh, for me, yeah, mainly for Robert please, taking the notes. <laughs> please do. But <laughs> a- accuracy is a fundamental principle. So, so now, which is why you would have seen, uh, I mean, something that rather made me, made me laugh, um, uh, and I'm sure you saw it as well, just before the, G- the GDPR was to come into force, Weatherspoons made a very, very big marketing splash and they went, we've deleted the whole of our customer database. Now, uh, I think this was a lot of hot air, personally. <laughs> Uh, it was a very good marketing splash because it's like, oh, I go to Weatherspoon because they care about my privacy. <laughs> and uh, they want it to be accurate, so they're going to start from scratch. Do you think people go to Weatherspoons because of their data? Well, I don't know, but it was I, a big I thought they went for the beer. It, well, that's exactly right. And a business like Weatherspoon is the only type of, that really doesn't uh, transact online, yeah. is the only type that could do that sort of thing because it they doesn't have any that, customer data. Does, <laughs> I mean, they have a website and they send newsletters and what have you and all of that. So for them, deleted the market, deleting the marketing database was neither here nor there. However, it made the headlines just before GDPR, which was fabulous. I, I only have one meaning in life, which is to take Robert for a meal at Weatherspoons. And now that I know that they delete the data, no one will have to know that Robert has been there. had been there. Ah, well, I tell you what. So after that, I was looking at it thinking, well, that sounds a bit drastic, deleting your marketing database. A few months later, so the GDPR was then into force, I went onto their website just to check. It's like, my God, sensible business, you know, takes privacy and protection very seriously. Um, and I went and looked at the their privacy notice and how they would take it and it was absolutely shocking <laughs> so so confirm me in my idea that it was a very very clever marketing, marketing exercise but, but they didn't use lawyers but that's all it was <laughs> <laughs> ah this is this is one very close to my own heart um uh, you'll have seen I've, I've written some white papers on this so where where do you niera stand on the whole question of Libra and Facebook. Do you, do you think this is a lot of hot air that Mark Zuckerberg's pumping out there to just get the Facebook name out there? Or do you think he made a wrong turn and he sort of misjudged the opinion of the regulators and the governments and the banks and thought, oh, I'm going to just push this through and everyone's going to use Libra and, uh, and I'll have all their data forever. What, 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 what's your... My take on it is I think Facebook is a very toxic brand anyway. I think everything Facebook does, uh, and they do many, many things, is about control. So they have traded since inception on the data they can have. They have done very well on the back of it until the regulation came into force, not just the GDPR, but I'm sure uh, you're familiar with uh, the CCPA in California and many other states that are doing data privacy and data protection. The difference now is that people, as in people at large, are more aware of privacy, data privacy and, and data protection issues. So it is more in the public consciousness. So when the Libra uh, white paper 
كلمات I'm sure we all delved in and tried to look what it was actually. There was a lot in there. There was, was a very there lots was, of data. There was absolutely a lot in there. And imagine, I mean, the amount or the volume of uh, users that they have worldwide, and suddenly they're thinking of creating. I mean, can we call it a digital currency or a uh, cre- global, I'm not it's a sure. It is depending currency. on the definition you look at. So. Uh, not arguing about the exact definition of a cryptocurrency, but for the purpose of this talk, let's maybe call a, it... Maybe a token of value. Yes. Controlled by a quote-unquote independent, independent body, which, you know, has Facebook sitting <laughs> in it. Kind of Facebook to help. And there's a wallet. You know, I don't know <laughs> if you agree with me, but, you know, whomever has the wallet, you know, is a winner <laughs> in my book. <laughs> so they have the currency they have the wallet and they have the masses and masses of users worldwide so no wonder the regulators are going oh, 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 oh you threat- so the start all the payment companies went in and said we want to be part of this and now and now they all there's only one left isn't it or is that no is there's that- no no there's still there's still quite a quite a few left paypal's gone yeah yeah paypal uh, has the gone. gone yeah yeah visa still, yeah there's still hey you is left is it yeah Yes. You, Uber's still in there. Yeah. And they, they, they had a great day today, didn't they? They, they reported <laughs> they, 5.24 billion of losses for the last three months. Their biggest loss ever. But anyway, but that's, that's just Uber who are in there. And it, yeah. So a million, 10 million for them in, uh, is, 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 is small change. Uh, so all the regulators, obviously, uh, and 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 the, the the central banks, you know, got really worried about this and say, well, in the UK, we've also mm. issued uh, saying you need to comply with this, that, and the other. So everyone is worried. Well, Mark Kearney seemed to not dismiss it. it. He he seems not to dismiss it and uh, uh, trying to say that in fact he will be very good at following uh, uh, anti-money laundering regulations. Yeah. So uh, and of course we do always believe Mark Zuckerberg. But anyway. Uh, but what, what, what about the, the, the whole premise? The, the, the whole the, premise, the, the, the whole premise of Libra mm-hmm. as, a, as a universal, payment let's say, solution. payment solution that is going to promote financial inclusion. Financial inclusion, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, is going to is promote that? financial inclusion, that is going to be relatively frictionless, that is going to be safe and stable, is a fantastic idea. If Ooh. Facebook wasn't involved. Ah, okay. okay. But, I mean, uh, clearly he was doing it for altruistic purposes because he wanted financial inclusion around the world through this. That, did, that was really his reason, you, clearly. Did you, did you read the little paragraph in the Libra white papers? I think it's only three or four lines, and I will paraphrase because I don't remember the exact words. But it says in there, and we will also provide a universal digital identity. Oh, how now, nice. Now, I read that and I get scared, but that's me. Do you have a Facebook account? Uh, I do have a completely anonymous Facebook account, which I... Not even your name on it? it there's, well, there's, there's my name on it, but that's all there is. And there's no photo. I'm not active. I are you, don't are post. you on LinkedIn? I, I am absolutely on LinkedIn and I am absolutely with on... With your real on, name? On Twitter with my real name okay. on both of those. But on Facebook, I'm in there with my I real have name. I anagram on my Facebook. But uh, there's nothing in there. Universal digital identity provided by Facebook. I mean, the whole Libra thing is about control. So when we talk about brands, I mean, 
you trust, you don't trust Facebook, right? Are there any of the big gaffer brands that you do trust? I have to say that I quite trust Amazon. Mm. Amazon is a trusted brand. Yeah, I, 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 I know what you mean. You tend to, I tend to buy things from Amazon, even if it's a bit more expensive, just knowing that if something goes wrong, it's taken care of. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Amazon is single-handedly responsible for the decline of the high street. Nero, I know you're one of the, um, the one of advocates that are always educating and running a number of courses at the Emerging Payments Association. And, you know, first of all, how did you get involved in that? And then secondly is, what do you find from the audience that are there? What are the, the most common questions that they ask you? Well, that's a funny story, this. So when I first talked to Tony Craddock, I think it was in 2015, and Tony is the Director General of the Emerging Payments Association, and we were chatting uh, about uh, me getting involved with the EPA, so there was no mention of, of training at, at that point. Um, and, uh, and then I got involved and on the uh, advisory board and, and, and then as, a, as an ambassador. And the EPA then was a young organization and you were trying to promote it. I think we joined it, together. I yeah. think we joined it was called, was it called? Your GX. Your GX. Yes. I remember Your GX. Yes. I, it's the same logo that they had for Gatwick Airport. You know, when you yeah. come through Gatwick oh. Airport, it's got GX yes. everywhere. And I was thinking, gosh, Tony's got some great branding in Gatwick <laughs> now. And then I realised it was just Gatwick so, uh, so, yeah, because they were young and they were trying to grow and everything, and I floated the idea to Tony and I said, you know, you, you want to promote knowledge, you want to promote emerging payments and everything else. How about training? Uh, and I said, and I could kick you off with that because I could, I could do a payments training as in a, a deep dive into payments, a whole day course where you lock people in a room and you just inject them with payments knowledge. So, so the Payments 101 course covers everything about payments that you could possibly cover in a day, but it covers card payments, it covers bank payments, so the bank raise, the card raise, it covers emerging payments, the different types, uh, it covers how it works, so we talk about authorization clearing settlement, it talks about fintech, it talks about open banking, and it talks about all of the regulations that are relevant to, uh, to, the, uh, to the payment space in general, because it is really rather vast. It's, it's funny because that course is actually suitable for people that are new to payment and just want to go, well, what is this all about? Or for people that are not new to payment because very rarely will you find a person that is very familiar with the bank raise and also very familiar with the card raise. So people come in just to see the whole overview of right. everything or how it works. And also for those who have been in the industry for a number of years to consolidate their knowledge because the course is updated each time I give it. Because right. this industry is so so yes. fast moving. I mean, generally, one of the misconceptions that people have certainly on the on the card race section is uh, who makes the most money ah, in right. that ecosystem. So, in the payments value chain, yeah. who's making the most money? In the payments value chain, who's making the so most money? Is it the, the banks? And the most common mi misconception is they think. Uh, two most common misconceptions is either the schemes yes. or the acquirers. Right. As opposed to they don't realize it's the banks. <laughs> to as opposed to the banks. So uh, that is a common misconception. I think that's probably the the funniest one when we go through the value. When we get a lot of guests, a lot of guests tend to go straight into the acronyms. 
Would you say when you're doing the training, do the acronyms bamboozle people? Does it empower people? Is it because oh, no. our industry is full of them? Absolutely not. I mean, one of uh, uh, the fundamental principles in my course is that yes, there is a lot of jargon and buzzwords and acronyms in the payment space, but today we will bust all of that. And that's one of the very first things I say, which is, should I lapse? You know and say an acronym that you either forgot or I didn't present, please do stop me. So uh, it's, a, it's a jargon free, well, there's plenty of jargon, but yes. the jargon is getting explained. So Robert, why don't you... I, I, I was just uh, randomly searching an anagram of your, your name, Suresh Rajani. Have you found it? Yeah, but I I'm not sure really what it means. It, shag shave agony. On that note... <laughs> <laughs> It's not often that we, we, we're lost for words, um, but we are very thorough in all of our research I, I, I and investigations. I do like random word generators. <laughs> so, Robert, you yeah. are going to Should we ask... go back and ask another question? Is cyber war a bigger threat to global stability than physical attacks with bombs and what not? What not? What not? I don't know who wrote this, obviously. Oh, it's English third, third language of English, or maybe it's uh, an Eton schoolboy who's going to be the next Prime Minister. Um, it could be Boris that wrote these questions, you don't know. Yeah. Well, what not? Uh, what not? The short answer, the short is, answer is, is, is absolutely yes. Yes, you think absolutely yes. this could be if worse you, than bombs. If, if you think of how we live nowadays, we're increasingly digital. More and more of our lives is actually online. Our information is online. We work online. We trade online. We do everything online. We vote online. We do whatever you can think of. At some point, we will be do, doing it online. Um, so there's much more at stake now than there was, say, 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago. So 30 or 40 years ago, had you asked the same question, well, everybody would have laughed. There was no like, internet. You know, there's like, no internet. You and yet there's some, some computers around and, you know. I mean, imagine you can manipulate data to a specific purpose. Hence, very topically, um, the news that I'm sure you, you've seen over the past couple of days about polit political ads on social media mm. platforms. So state actors can actually manipulate data. They can manipulate networks to to a certain end technology is now enabling that and what people all too often forget is that technology advancement and people research and come up with new and fantastic ideas criminals are very clever as well i mean those that are really determined as opposed to the opportunistic one that are just after you know some fraud to make a quick buck but Criminals are very clever as well. Criminals read patent applications. They read research papers, just like we do. And I'll give you an example just to make a parallel, going back to faster payment, because that's my hobby horse at the minute. And uh, if you look at the faster payments, um, it was launched in 2008, as you know, and it is not until 2014 that we uh, started to see APP fraud 
happening. So here's I've, I've plugged in an acronym them. So authorized push payment fraud. <laughs> <laughs> so so we started to see authorized push payment fraud, and and if you remember, it was some holiday company. Was it Holiday Direct or something? Uh, yeah, and people were losing their deposits because they were victim of uh, 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 phishing emails and then they were sending the money to the criminal essentially and the law didn't cater for you to recover that money by law because you essentially authorized that payment right. to that account. Now, why did that happen? And why did it only happen in 2014? As I mentioned earlier on, very low volume to start with. Then we had direct corporate access, yeah. which gave you the volume and everything else. So suddenly you had the uh, criminals ha had time to learn how the system was operating. And the system was operating in such a way that when you authorize a payment on your online banking account, the only thing that is actually checked is the sort code and the account number. So your fake solicitor or whomever will send you an email, give you sort code account number with the name of your solicitor, but that does not get checked. So you're going to make that payment, which is going to go to a fraudulent uh, account. Um, and it took some years for criminals for, for one to have the volumes and for criminals to learn how the system operates. It's the same for everything. It will take some time for them to learn how the system operates and then to find the flaws and the vulnerabilities and then go for it. Another <coughs> example is the British Airways and the um, Ticketmaster breaches, which were both e-commerce breaches. The reason why this was happening is because there were vulnerabilities on those websites. I know very well since my time at Barclaycard that the PCI DSS standard evolved over the years from version 1 to now we now on to version 3. And the reason why that standard evolved is because new threats happened that weren't catered for in the previous version. We have become better and better at protecting our infrastructures, but technology has advanced. Criminals have advanced mm. as well, so we've plugged some holes, some new ways of doing things happen, and suddenly, so I have no doubt that in further versions of the DSS, for example, all you can do is, to the best of your knowledge, protect and follow the advice that is given to you. And I guess it's like building a fence to stop someone getting in and forgetting they can tunnel under. Well, that's, that's exactly it, and that is when there is a fence. Because way, way back, we used to have what the information security uh, community calls the perimeter. What the chief information security officer, or whatever they were called, were in charge of protecting the perimeter. Because you had your environment and all, everything was in it. Now we're more and more digital. There is no such thing as a perimeter. You're on your mobile. You're on devices. We bring stuff. Everything is in the cloud. The perimeter has completely crumbled. So it needs a different approach to... Uh, uh, cyber security and uh, fraud prevention. And is the cloud a, a more vulnerable place if mm. you've got multiple different companies hosted on the same cloud? Is, is that not, more? No, not necessarily. The cloud is only as vulnerable as your own security policy or okay. strategy. If you have a very good security strategy, architecture, and information security management uh, approach uh, that that is sensible for your purposes, then so should your cloud infrastructure and cloud strategy.
you know, there are many, many data breaches around and I, I don't know, I tweet generally a few, there's probably one a week and another leaky bucket either on AWS or, mm-hmm. or, or Azure. But when you look down to what it comes down to, leaked from an unsecured database. So if you're going to leave a database not password protected open to the public where there's data in it, well, you deserve what you get in my book. <laughs> so, yeah, you're saying make sure you zip up and keep everything safe. Absolutely. Be aware of what you have and where and, uh, and use common sense. When you say we're getting better and better, would you say that's by region? Like, could you say that in Europe we're very advanced, but actually in other places around the world they may be 10, 15 years behind? Are they uh, vulnerable regions? Well, yes, they definitely are vulnerable regions, as you probably observe when the, the Bangladeshi banks uh, yes. got... Uh, when they bought uh, a lovely Wi-Fi router. That, that's right. So <laughs> when the Bangladeshi banks got uh, hacked of uh, several uh, millions of, of billions, I don't remember what the exact figure was, and everybody was saying, uh, oh, breach of the SWIFT system, so let's set the record straight. It was not a breach of the SWIFT system. It was a, a, a lack of appropriate controls on, on behalf of the banks that pushed SWIFT into uh, issuing certain guidelines to the members that they needed to comply with. So I don't know how that's working because that was based on itself. So it was almost a guideline to the banks were, don't buy your Wi-Fi router on eBay. <laughs> yes, and verify when the payment request is made. And, you know, that's what it is, governance. It yes. was a governance issue. Now, uh, you may have multi-factor authentication and so on and so forth and all of those good things that you have on your account, which I'm sure you do and we all do. Uh, but if a person were to social engineer you, get hold of your credentials, then all bets are off because mm. they have valid credentials. They have the key. So no matter how secure the system is, Getting to the people is actually much easier. You kind of lived in many places around the world, right? What's your views on Brexit and the impact it has on fintech? Ooh, well, for, uh, first, just a little question. First to throwing of all, at the end. How, how, how perspicacious of, of you to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he is very precocious, a precocious brat, we call him. <laughs> <laughs> and and I make just it remember a, that telegram. It wasn't I, an Eton accent. And I, and I always make it a case in point never to discuss politics in public. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the impact on the financial services sector, well, uh, will we get adequacy in terms of uh, the regulations? I am hoping we will. I think the Data Protection Act is pretty tight. I am not aware that we got an adequacy decision yet, but um, no doubt this will be possible. Uh, in terms of uh, PSD2 and open banking and all those good things, I seem to have seen a couple of days ago that this will still be part of the regulations in the UK. Will we still be able to passport you know, in, in and out uh, to European countries? It would be foolish you know, of both sides, not to agree to that. The UK is a major financial centre. So you're hoping common sense will prevail? I am hoping common sense will prevail. Everybody wants to simplify and reduce friction on cross-border payments. 
you would be going against the grain if <laughs> you introduce more friction. It, I agree, it doesn't make sense, but it, yeah. uh, it's certainly been on the minds of many payment companies and certainly fintechs that, that a no-deal Brexit could be damaging to their markets. And certainly a lot of money has been spent by a lot of fintechs on establishing in other parts of the EEA. They like have, yes. Ireland, like Lithuania, yes. like Malta, like Cyprus, uh, like uh, um, Holland. There's been quite a few markets where people have gone into, and Germany, a lot of the banks have uh, re-established in Germany. Do you think that has basically affected the ability for a lot of those organisations to move forward in the pace they would have been moving had they not had this looming over them? Well, undeniable from a purely economic perspective, it is it is a massive cost to establish a new a new operation somewhere else. That time will tell as to whether that was necessary or not. I mean, if you look at uh, a country like uh, Switzerland, for example, they've never had any problems with it. No, but they've, they've got a lot of trade agreements, uh, as have places like Norway. Yeah. So, um, so if if you take your time and build your trade agreements over maybe a nine to fifteen year period, you can do something. If you've got eighteen months to do it, it's a lot trickier. And I, I think that was the the concern. It's not that you couldn't create a, a trading uh, position in the same way as some of the other European countries, not in the EU, have done. But it's, it's more the time frame to come to those agreements and negotiating with 27 countries around the EU, for example, can take a while. Yeah, but it, it wasn't 18 months. If you look at it, when, when did we start talking about this? <laughs> Probably since the referendum. Yeah, about three years. So, so you know, in three years, you what know... What has been done? What has been done? What has been done in terms of passporting? Is anyone talking about it? You know, what's happening? So in the meantime, because of the uncertainty, companies go and establish head offices in, in, in other EA countries to be able to trade. But uh, payments will flow. As always. As always. So thank you very much again, Niera. It's been a pleasure chatting to you both. Thank you. Fintech Unplugged is available for download on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast and TuneIn. So please subscribe today and remember to give us a five-star rating. Probably, I would, I would like to, you've already asked the question about open banking. We could ask another question about open banking. Uh, I, I think it would be nice to ask the man on the street if, uh, if they're aware of what open banking can give them. Okay, so let's ask Robert, the man on the street, what open banking can give them or if they've heard of it. Okay, let's ask Jeff. Jeff, are you out there? Wow. What do you think of that? 
I was gonna say that I didn't expect that, but it's it's no. To a I think we kind of expected where anything happens. Exactly, Nero. Did you expect that? Well, you know, probably yes. <laughs> We've seen it before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>